Program Associate at Ponars Eurasia. And with us today is Tomila Lenkina, a professor of international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and Alexander Lippmann, a professor of social science and Eastern European studies at the University of Munich. Uh, Tomila and Alexander, thank you so much for joining me for this uh, Ponars podcast. So, uh, Tomila, why did you decide to study Russia's pre-communist social history? I decided to study Russia's pre-communist social history because I felt it's been airbrushed out of contemporary debates about the historical drivers of the democratic and developmental uh, outcomes that we see in post-Soviet states and and Russia in in particular. And I think um, having worked with uh, census and other data from the pre-revolutionary period, I, I think there is there are implications for um, from that uh, d- those data, and there is um, there is a kind of analytical purchase in leveraging data from the pre-communist period to explain why we observe the democratic and developmental outcomes that we observe now. And specifically, I'm looking at regional variations in democratic and developmental patterns within Russia, which I think are kind of rooted in, to a certain extent, in pre-communist history. In what way is it relevant for understanding contemporary Russian society and politics? Uh, One aspect um, that I'm looking at in my uh, wider book project and in the paper that I'm working on with Alexander Liebman from the, the University of Munich is the social stratification of imperial Russia. And specifically, we're looking at the system of estates, which were codified in law in imperial Russia and distinguished between the aristocracy, then the a merchant estate, the so-called Mishani estate, which is an urban estate we're in particular interested in, uh, and the peasants. And what we find is that the Mishani were sort of like a proto-bourgeois estate. They were uh, kind of an urban uh, group, uh, individuals involved in urban occupations, and uh, that these this estate um, has been unjustly vilified in both pre-communist and and communist history. Um, And um, in fact, these uh, individuals who were legally kind of ascribed to that estate often occupied positions in the social hierarchy that we would kind of place as as middle class in contemporary terms. They were often far better educated than the vast majority of, of people in Imperial Russia. Uh, they, uh, they were perhaps, uh, some of them perhaps were associated with kind of having more socially progressive views. They were engaged in commercial um, occupations or they were in, involved in capitalist relations that were kind of very much uh, developing in, in the late Imperial period very, very rapidly. In, in Russia, and what I find is that 
after the Bolsheviks took power, we know from a, a large volume of historiographic scholarships, they, they had to work with people who were relatively well educated to perform and to engage in the various developmental campaigns from the elimination of illiteracy campaign to uh, campaigns to promote industrialization and other forms of development. So they had to work with people who were relatively well educated. On the other hand, a lot of the, the top layers, members of the top layer of society, the aristocracy for instance, they were e either emigrated or were, um, or, or were perished in the purges. But this kind of middle layer of educated society the, the Mishani and others, the merchant estate as well, and to a certain extent the remnants of the aristocracy, they formed the core of what we, uh, of, of what the Bolsheviks had come to uh, label the new Soviet intelligentsia. So the new Soviet intelligentsia we conceptualize as actually products of the pre-communist proto-bourgeoisie. And what, what implications that, that have, does that have for social development in the communist period? Well, it means that to a certain extent, at a very general level, the social relations of Imperial Russia were, were conserved in, um, in the Soviet class um, structure, in that the peasant estate, many of, 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 of members of that estate were stayed on in the countryside and were trapped in the collective farms. Whereas the, this proto-bourgeoisie entered the white-collar occupations in, in, in Soviet uh, Russia, and, and we argue that they're probably their descendants have done also comparatively well in the context of post-communist transition by virtue of having occupied white-collar positions in the Soviet uh, period. What implications do your findings have for understanding the potential for democratic change in Russia? So it's, it's a kind of mixed set of implications, I would say. On the one hand, we see how the, the proto-bourgeoisie of the communist period, how uh, we can trace the links of, of um, in, some, in some areas where the, the, the share of these kind of better educated strata of Tsarist society were, was higher. We see the regions, the present day regions of, 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 of Russia, uh, in, in those regions, we observe uh, more democratic voting patterns, and perhaps even that we, we, we have some evidence suggesting that higher likelihood of pro-market orientations. Um, so there is a, an analytical purchase to argue that we have to incorporate pre-communist period and, and history into our analysis of these variations that we observe now. On the other hand, we also know that Russian society remains incredibly divided um, and in terms of having a, a small layer of what some scholars have called the liberal, progressive, urban, westernized intelligentsia, um, and the rest of society who are supportive, perhaps, of the kind of authoritarian model of development. And in, in, in this sense, too, we observe the importance of history because um, these patterns of variations in democratic preferences are spatial uh, in that we have kind of hubs of political and economic liberalism and liberal values in particular regions and among particular strata, but this is not something that is very widespread. So what implications for democratic change? 
it's very difficult for a society to mobilize around a kind of unified set of pro-democratic attitudes and, for instance, challenge the authoritarian regime in power because of these kind of what we observe to be historically rooted socioeconomic divisions. Right. Uh, maybe I add a few words on the data use because uh, such a project is definitely very demanding in terms of type of historical and contemporary data you need and you need to match together. And uh, demanding particularly because the data should have two important features. You need very clear evidence of long temporal continuity linking the past to the present over all intermediate stages, which is in this case 70 years of the Soviet rule. And you need very high spatial resolution, because otherwise you will not be able to capture the necessary variation to show what Tamila was talking about, the existence of these pockets of demand for more democratic, more competitive practices. And the data the project relies upon are indeed uh, having this feature. So the key element of this data sets is the data from the imperial census, the census conducted in late 19th century which is not only containing information on the social certification, on the level of human capital, which existed at that era, uh, literacy rates, and on mobility of the population, but is also available to us at a very low uh, spatial level, at the level of the so-called Uyests, which were the, uh, almost the lowest uh, territorial unit of the Russian Empire. And in order to proceed with the project, and that is, I think, an incredible achievement what Tamila did with this data, it was to link this UYES level data with the contemporary data for more than uh, 2,200 Russian rayons, uh, which exist in the modern Russian Federation. And uh, after linking that, we were able to see empirically, quantitatively, how the specifics of the social structure these territories had, almost 110 uh, depending on the, the type of, of, of questions we look, almost 110 years ago, even more sometimes, affect the voting behavior and the political patterns today. Uh, and we indeed are able to see, for instance, to provide probably the most important finding that uh, uh, territories with high Mishani shares still demonstrate very strongly pro-democratic behavior. But that's not all what we have to use to really validate the key argument of the project we also need to show high long-term spatial continuity. And for this question, the Soviet data come in. Soviet data are tricky. They are not always available, even for the most obvious questions, and they are difficult to work with. You have another level of matching. But still, we look at several types of Soviet data, which confirm to us that the Soviet developmental project indeed preserved this social structure to some extent, allowing it at some point of time to affect the political behavior. Uh, we look, for example, at data on the education level, this time less desegregated, but still at the oblast level for uh, decades after decade of Soviet rule. We look at data at how repressions went on in the Soviet Union. We looked at the location of gulag camps. We have data for one of the key elements of the Soviet development project, the secret cities, where the um, science and technology had to be con concentrated to advance the Soviet agenda. And we see that all of these elements really follow very clear spatial patterns. So gulag camps are located in territories which already had high human capital. Uh, secret cities seek out 
territories which already are developed under, Soviet, under pre-Soviet rule. There is a very strong correlation between the education levels throughout the whole Soviet history and the pre-Soviet human capital, which is in turn correlated with the pre-Soviet social structure. So we are indeed able to show this long-durée persistence going through the Soviet development of project, which leads us to the results Tamila uh, summarized right now. Fascinating. Alexander and Tola, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.